Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that we do serve a loving God, a wise, loving, all-powerful God, one who has chosen to reveal himself to us. For without that step, we would never know you, Father. We would imagine you in our own minds. We would create you according to our own desires, and that would be no God at all. But you have chosen to show yourself to us by your Son and through your Word, by your Spirit living in us, through the prophets over the ages. You have reached into the world and shown yourself. And by that enlightening, we've known you now, Father. We've become part of your family, one of your children. We sit at your feet to learn now from the Father and from our Master. Please guide us in this study. Please show us yourself. Give us cause and heart to follow and to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you're excited about what we're doing next in the story of Genesis and particularly in the story of Joseph because we've transitioned now out of the story of Isaac and we are going to turn our attention now to the Toldot of the generations of Jacob. And in particular, we embark on what I think is the most fascinating story in Genesis and maybe arguably the most fascinating story in the Old Testament. And that is the story of Joseph. And so many people know this great drama of the story of Joseph. It follows several important themes, which we're going to look at as we go through the study. And these themes hold our attention. In fact, they spur a lot of theological debate because they're foundational themes. And in particular, the theme we'll look at off and on throughout the story is that of God's sovereignty. This is a story of God's sovereignty. In the way Moses approaches this account, he will hold in balance, some might even say intention, two sides of God's sovereignty, the two aspects of it. First, you're going to see the sin of Jacob's sons clearly evident in this story. And by their sinful will, making sinful desires known, making these choices, they will plunge the family into crisis. So on the one hand, you have the family's sin driving events. But on the other hand, you're going to see God using their sin, working with that sin to accomplish a plan that he set forth literally centuries earlier. And so in the end, you see man's sin becoming the means of God accomplishing his will. And men have long marveled at the story of Joseph for wondering how could God accomplish exactly the good that he always said he would and always intended to do, but do it by taking advantage of men's sinful choices. It leaves us asking, well, what if those men had never chosen to sin? Or if they had not acted exactly as they chose to act, how would God have accomplished his plan? Is man really choosing what man wants to do freely? If so, then how can a man's free will fit so perfectly into God's plan when we know God is not the author of sin? The answer, of course, is that there is a degree of mystery in the way that God can purpose to achieve certain things, but do it through choices and decisions that men are apparently making by their own will. And the mystery is that we can't fully reconcile those two, but we can understand how God went about using sin. And we can certainly understand his purposes in what he's accomplishing. And that's going to be one of the major themes we study in this story. Moses' account of Joseph is going to bring man's will and God's will together and explain both the reason for Joseph's departure into Egypt and explain the eventual following of all of Jacob's family. 
That's a story, by the way, that doesn't end in Genesis, as you probably know. It goes all the way through the five books of Moses and, and even, in a sense, beyond that into the Bible as a whole. So first, Moses shows us that God is working to accomplish what he told Abraham he would accomplish. Remember, he said, to Abraham, your descendants will live in a land that is not theirs for 400 years and be enslaved. Well, God is working that plan out. And then secondly, Moses is going to show us that that plan and particularly Joseph's slavery made necessary by the sin of his brothers is a part of how God was intending to do this work. These brothers of Joseph, the other 11, they're going to hate him, we're told. They're going to want to kill him. They're going to eventually sell him to slave traders. But there's another side of the story. I've been talking about Joseph up to this point, but there's another side of the story. There's another component of how God moves Israel into Egypt and why he moves them into Egypt. And the other component is in chapter 38, the chapter that follows from this one. That's the story of Judah. And Judah's story gives us a second explanation, a second piece of why God has to move Israel into Egypt. So our first priority in the study of Joseph's story is going to be understanding how God takes evil, sinful hearts and uses them to produce exactly the good that God has purposed. Speaking of evil and turning evil to good, that leads us to our second principle that we're going to study in this story. And that is how Joseph is a picture of Christ. There is probably no Old Testament character whose life better represents Christ than Joseph. Some scholars have done the analysis on this and have found upwards of 130 similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. We won't note all 130 in the course of our study, but we're going to note a lot of them as we come across them. It's important to note these parallels to Jesus' life because they give added evidence or support for our faith that the word of God is inspired, that the plan of God in Christ was always the plan, and that God has always been at work revealing that plan, even in the subtle details of the life of a man called Joseph. It's also important as students in here for us to note that these 130 similarities, they do not come in chronological order matched to the life of Christ. You're going to see some of these similarities come in different orders so that a similarity between Joseph and Christ when Joseph was a young boy might come late in the story. And a similarity between Joseph and Christ when Jesus comes in his second coming might be early in the story. These things aren't patterned chronologically, but they're there. More importantly, these similarities, where we find them, they're not there for our amusement. You know, this isn't a game, this isn't a puzzle, and we just find these when we can and check them off on a page and then move on. They're intended to draw our attention to a larger parallel. We're going to see God doing, on behalf of Israel, through Joseph here, things that he intends to do for the nation as a whole later on. So the parallels here eventually become a study for us in the future of the nation of Israel. Israel, in Joseph's day, are 12 boys, literally, the sons of Israel. In the future, of course, Israel becomes a nation, and there is a plan yet for that nation. And what will happen to that nation has happened to the sons of Joseph. And one is a parallel to the other. So when I see Joseph as a picture of Christ, it's not merely for the parlor game of finding all the puzzle pieces. It's to remind us that what God is doing in the life of Joseph and his brothers was intended to picture for us what God will do with Christ and the nation of Israel in a future day. 
So that's a much more important and useful study. We'll be looking at that as well. Finally, in the last point of introduction, we are going to examine our continuing story of the seed promise. We started that all the way back in the early pages of this book, and we're still in that thought. We're still looking for that. So we want to see how this promise to bring the seed, to bring Christ, moves forward from Isaac to Jacob and now Jacob to his sons and specifically to the family of Judah and to the family of Joseph. We know Jacob has 12 sons, but the toldot, the genealogy of Jacob, only deals with two of them. Chapters 37 and then 39 through about 45 deals with Joseph. Chapter 38 deals with Judah, and that's all there is. Because those two sons are the only two that have anything to do with the seed promise moving forward. Well, that's enough introduction. Let's go to the chapter. Chapter 37. We'll start in verse 1, of course. And let's take note of those themes and the general narrative of the text as we go forward. Verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the genealogies, I'm sorry, of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a varied colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Well, let's pause and start our study there. This chapter now opens with the tenth toldot. Remember I said there were ten in the whole story of Genesis. This is the last one. You may have even missed it. It was so short. You're used to a whole page, aren't you, of the generations of and the generations of and the generations of. Well, when we get to the generations of Jacob and his sons, this is it. Joseph. That's the name that's mentioned. Now, obviously, there's more to the family than Joseph. But with respect to the seed promise, he begins with Joseph and continues with Joseph apart from chapter 38 all the way to the end. So we're looking at the story of God's redemptive work moving now from Jacob to the next generation. And as we begin, we're reminded of Joseph's place and his circumstance in the family. He is the 11th son of Jacob, the first son of Rachel. And she was the loved wife, if you remember. By the time we get here to chapter 37, he is about 17 years old. So imagine a 17-year-old young boy, young man. In terms of age, he's closest in age to his natural brother, Benjamin. And as the text says, he also was similar in age or youthful with Bilhah and Zilpah's sons. Joseph's natural mother, the woman that Jacob loved, has died by now. So his mother is not here anymore. And so under these circumstances, Joseph finds himself in a really difficult situation. He is the favorite of his father, presumably because he was born of Rachel. He is very nearly the lowest ranking son in the family. Now, that's by worldly standards. And in the world and in the culture of this day, boys had preference over girls in terms of the the authority of the family. And then the oldest always had preference over the younger. So there was a pecking order by age. And Joseph's next to last in this pecking order, and yet he has been assigned to the chief position in his father's household after his father. And that delicate situation has put him under a tremendous challenge. He will have the great love and affection of his father as a man who sees Joseph as the greatest gift God ever gave him. 
And he's going to have to deal with his brother's jealousy, with his brother's resentment, and he is going to have to lord over them under those circumstances. This family saga, this whole problem of Joseph being preferred and his brothers resenting it and his brothers hating him, all of this saga results, at least in part, from Jacob, from Jacob's character flaws and the way it's impacted his family. Remember, Jacob has always shown favoritism. Remember when he lined up his family before he met Esau? And he's a man who himself has not been prone to resting in God's work very often and to rely on God's will. Remember, he's the guy that would fight against family and foe to get what he wanted. So in his family, now his sons mimic many of those shortcomings. They show favoritism. They demand things for themselves. They fight against one another to get what they want. They're contending with each other rather than resting in God. And that opening to the story in verse 2 includes this curious detail that Joseph is over his brothers working in the field, shepherding and having authority over them as shepherds. Now, it's not unusual that he's shepherding. Young boys often did that. Remember, David, when Samuel comes to anoint the next king, David's out in the field. That's where young boys spent their time mostly. What's unusual is that the youngest would not be over any of the other brothers, as he is in this case. He is said to be pasturing or feeding the sheep, meaning he was the one in charge of his older brothers. Apparently, he's been placed in this position of authority even at an early age. In verse 3, we're told why he has this position. It says, Jacob loved Joseph the most. Now, at first, you're going to be tempted to read into that text something that's not actually there. Because at first, you're probably tempted to assume that this is just the old favoritism of Jacob raising its ugly head again here, and that he has just arbitrarily selected Joseph to be the one in charge. We know he's done this before. Even Isaac did this in a sense. Isaac preferred Esau, Rebekah preferred Jacob, and then it followed that Jacob also seemed to prefer Rachel over Leah, and so on. So we know that his father has this sinful tendency, but we're told specifically here That he loves Joseph more than the other sons because Joseph was the son of his old age, it says. Some have taken this to mean that he loved Joseph the most because Joseph came late in Jacob's life. Well, if that were the case, if that's what this meant, then logic would dictate that no, not Joseph would be the favorite, but that Benjamin would be the favorite. Because Benjamin was literally the last son. And more importantly, Benjamin was the one that was born when Rachel died. If he was going to have any affection for one son over the rest, you would think it would have been Benjamin. And the term of old age would suggest that. But no, it's Joseph. That takes us back to the Hebrew to get our clarity. The original words here in Hebrew, ben zakun, it literally means wise son. Wise son. I don't know why the English translators chose to put of old age in place of wise. The word zakun in Hebrew literally means beard. Beardedness is a a way the scriptures sometimes describe wisdom in the same way that elders, the word for elder in Greek literally means gray hair. So we have these these symbols of wisdom that come with age. And so the text here is saying Jacob's love for Joseph was a reflection of Joseph's wisdom. And that at an early age, Joseph has this uncharacteristic wisdom and strength as a leader that Jacob appreciates and has taken advantage of. Now, Jacob's other sons have already shown a terrible track record when it comes to wisdom. I mean, you remember the whole Shechem thing, right? And then Reuben laying with the concubine. I mean, there's there's hardly a record of endearing themselves to the father out of the rest of the sons, certainly not the oldest sons. 
Joseph, on the other hand, demonstrates these characteristics that the father appreciates. He gains his father's confidence. He gains the authority. Now, the problem here is Jacob's track record. You know, if Jacob was an otherwise fair-minded and reasonable person, perhaps his sons might have understood his decision. But you've got to remember, this is the Jacob who lined up his kids in reverse pecking order to be eaten by Esau's troops. This is a man who has a, a bad record when it comes to showing favoritism. So it means that now, as he begins to act according to reasonable standards, it's not taken that way by his sons. It's seen as unfair favoritism. It goes on to say that Jacob made for his son a symbol of authority and gave it to his son to wear this coat. Multicolored is the way my English version translates it. In Hebrew, the word is paz, P-A-S. It has no literal clear meaning in Scripture. There's no clear understanding of what that word means. It could have meant long-sleeved, some think. It could have meant multicolored or bright-colored. Whatever it looked like, we know what it meant because the boys, the family, knew what it meant. A robe represented authority. And when the robe was made and given to one son, the clear indication to the rest of the family is he's in charge. Robes always carried that significance. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? When the son returns to the father's house, among other things that the father does, he gives that son a robe to wear. Do you remember? And the ring that comes with it as well. When he did that, he was assigning to that younger son a place of honor over the older son, which is one of the reasons why the older son was so unhappy about the prospect of this happening. So Jacob here is awarding the place of honor and authority within the family to Joseph. And that was very much against the culture of the day. It may have also been easier for Jacob to make this award to Joseph because, remember, Jacob was the youngest and yet he received the place of honor from God. So maybe he was already thinking he could do this. But whatever the case is, it created this discord in the family. Isn't it ironic that Jacob seems to be rewarding Joseph for the right reasons, but in this case his sons still react negatively? It goes back to that history. No matter how hard you try to change perceptions, your reputation matters more than the facts. And that should give all of us, I think, cause to guard our witness, our Christian reputation. Otherwise, we run the risk of neutralizing any opportunity we may have to influence others for the sake of Christ. Because while we think our words have the power necessary to change them, and they do by the work of the Spirit, nonetheless, we may never gain a hearing if they remember us for our reputation. At some point, we're told in verse 2, Joseph brings back a bad report. Well, you know, it's one thing to rule over somebody else. It's another thing to get them in trouble. We don't know what the report was about. The scriptures don't tell us. It doesn't matter. But it's not hard to imagine something, right? We know Jacob's sons are prone to misbehavior. We know they have a variety of these little character weaknesses like murder and rape and general mayhem and... What other things could they have done while you're out with the sheep? Who knows? As jealous as they were of Joseph, you might even imagine they were out to get him with it. Maybe they were being intentionally malicious and lazy and rebellious, and they were leaving all the work to him. They were just rubbing his nose in it, trying hard to undermine his authority. Whatever it was, Joseph decides to tell his father about it. Now, what would you think the consequence of that report would have been? These young men are too old now to be physically punished, although maybe they could have been whipped in that day. Do you remember what Jacob threatened to do if somebody in his family had stolen Laban's idols? He threatened to kill them. Remember that? 
Perhaps the inheritance was at stake. I don't think we want to make light of whatever the consequences might have been. But the situation raises an even more interesting question for us as families, as parents. And the question is, when is it right for some child to inform parents of another child's misbehavior? When is that the right thing to do? Is it better to overlook a transgression for fear of being labeled a tattletale? Or is it right to always go to the parent? Because when I look at this text, I'm seeking, I'm searching for something in the text to tell me, was Joseph doing the right thing or was Joseph doing the wrong thing? I've actually heard Christian teachers, contemporary Christian teachers, teaching on the story of Joseph, labeling him a tattletale and a spoiled kid. And running off in that direction so as to malign the character of Joseph. But to do that, they had to read into the text here, didn't they? They had to make a judgment about whether or not this was the right thing. For example, was Joseph right or wrong here to inform his father of his brother's indiscretion? Was that right or was that wrong? When you read this account to your children, do you end the account by saying something like this? See what happens when you tattle, your brothers will sell you into slavery. (laughs) Or, Or maybe you say, maybe you go the other direction. Maybe you say, See, if you tell me everything your brothers are doing, I'm going to give you the better clothes. In my case, it's usually something like, if you don't tell mommy you saw me drinking orange juice from the jug in the refrigerator, I'm going to give you a little money on the side. You have to ask the fundamental question, what is a tattletale? We throw that word around. Well, I went to the Webster's Dictionary and I looked it up and it gave me a very helpful definition. It said it's one who tattles. So then I had to go look at tattle, and I found tattling is defined in a way I did not expect. In fact, I'm almost certain I'm going to surprise you with it as well. Tattling, by Webster's definition anyway, is repeating hearsay or gossip that's false. The definition of tattling is a false report, slander. It involves dishonesty, by definition. Now, you know who complains the most about tattletales? The people who are doing the wrong things. You notice that the people who are in trouble and then somehow, and I don't know quite where this comes from, but somehow the parents will latch onto that in some cases and think that the whole idea of telling on someone else is wrong. And and let me tell you, folks, if we're inclined to dissuade those who have a heart for righteousness from helping us instill righteousness in our other children, you're working against your own best interests in the long run with that kind of approach. We have to look at what happens with Joseph and ask ourselves, what is God's implicit commentary on this situation? We have no evidence in the scripture that Joseph gave a false report, do we? In fact, it's quite the contrary. It's pretty clear they did something wrong and he simply made a report about it. Knowing his brother's past indiscretions, we have every reason to assume that Joseph was simply doing the right thing and reporting about something his dad needed to know. You could even go so far as to assume, maybe, that Joseph did it with a little bit of Arrogance, maybe he didn't show enough tact, maybe he was a bit rough around the edges, didn't have the diplomacy of a leader yet, and so on and so forth. But still, that doesn't change the fundamentals. His brothers were not doing what they should. Joseph then did what he should. I have a favorite phrase I use with my kids. I used it more when they were younger, but it still comes up now from time to time. When they make a mistake and I have to step in and discipline them, what I say to them is, you didn't do the right thing. Don't expect me to follow that by doing the wrong thing. You didn't do the right thing, but I am going to do the right thing. And the right thing for a parent to do in the face of a mistake is to discipline. So even if we assume that Joseph didn't do it perfectly, we wouldn't have justification to assume 
that Joseph's reporting was wrong. Scripture's description of this event is entirely neutral without any negative slant or commentary. And if anything, it portrays Joseph as a man burdened with the difficult challenge of ruling over rebellious older brothers. So what do we tell our children about Joseph's situation? Was he tattling or was he doing the right thing? I think the simple answer is Joseph was giving a truthful report to his father, which was the right thing for him to do in light of the responsibility he was given. Moreover, he had a duty to do it. And as parents, if you choose to put an older child in a position of of authority over siblings, then Joseph's situation is a good model for how that should be conducted. First, he was selected because he was wise and mature beyond his years. Well, don't put someone in charge you can't trust. Make sure your children are ready for that responsibility. Can they execute the leadership role in fairness and with restraint? Secondly, back that child up. Every child should understand in the family that you expect all misbehavior to be reported and say very clearly, this is not tattling if it's truthful. And therefore, you're going to stand for righteousness in your family. And if you stand for righteousness and if that child stands for righteousness, you want to stand behind them. Obviously, we've got to be careful about raising little busybodies, but you can discern the difference. You can tell the difference between someone who's trying to be helpful with reports and someone who just wants to cause trouble. And we want to make sure that if there's going to be fear among the kids, the fear is that their misbehavior is known, not fear of telling on someone and being in trouble for telling. Finally, Joseph's situation. We don't know what consequences Jacob handed out here, but in verse 4, you get the critical point. The brothers saw that Jacob loved Joseph more. And we understand he had reasons, perhaps, this wisdom issue, but those reasons did not overshadow the reality that the years of Jacob's life have bred this intense hatred within the brothers to the point that Joseph's brothers didn't even speak to him, we're told, and Joseph was a pariah. If you think about Joseph and his life and you consider all that we know about him, keep this in mind. When he lived in the house before he went to Egypt, his brothers did not talk to him. He was a pariah to the point that he lived a solitary life in that family. Now, early on, even at this point, we have clear pictures of Christ. Have you noticed any with me in this morning's teaching so far? For example, Joseph's birth happened, we know, only by a supernatural intervention that God made into Rachel's life, right? Well, Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was the son that we're told Jacob loved. Well, Jesus was the beloved son of the father. We can also see other themes emerging at this early point. The sin of Joseph's brothers is already beginning to percolate. You have their hatred of their brother, despite the fact that it's their own fault. And you can tell Joseph is blameless, at least to this point in the story. Well, likewise, Jesus was hated by the nation of Israel and by those in leadership, even though he had authority over them. And they didn't like the conviction that it brought. And there's another parallel to Christ. Remember, Jesus said, In John 6.38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, Joseph was sent by the father to oversee his sons. Joseph's 11 brothers are the nation of Israel represented. We'll study this further in the story. Next week, the plot thickens. Joseph alienates not only his brothers, but in the next scenario, he alienates his father. But he does so in a godly way, as we'll see. Let's go to prayer, and then we'll begin a short time of communion. Dear Father, help us to see ourselves in the text. We see you, we see Christ represented in Joseph's life. We'll see more, we know. You have planted these things so we might understand that Jesus is the Lord and that 
his coming was planned and that his purposes will be met through men, even through sinful men. But help us see ourselves as well, Father. Help us see the opportunity to follow you more closely as Joseph does. Help us to see how persecution comes to those who follow you and accept it as your will and not shrink back from our duties in in obedience. Help us to take what we learn as parents and help our children grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Be with us in all these things. Help our little church grow, Father. Help us reach more people. Help us take the energies and the talents we have and make better use of them. Let us all rise to the occasion. Looking forward to the day you come. And I do pray as John did, Father, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we work as long as you tarry, and we pray that it would be soon that you would return. And we all ask all these things in the Holy Spirit's power and by the name of Jesus. Amen.